You are listening to the Get Your Head in the Game podcast with Shannon Beasley-Tate, episode 15. Welcome to Get Your Head in the Game, the podcast dedicated to helping you design the playbook for the life that you want with confidence, clarity, and purpose. I'm your host, Shannon Beasley-Tate. The clock is ticking. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. And if you're new, I'm so glad you're here. And if you're brand new to the podcast, welcome. And I'm excited about the information that we have for you today. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, then you know that I'm a life coach and I work with clients to get the best for and from themselves. And in today's episode, we're starting our new series on women's health. And as I said last week, it's so important at any stage of a woman's life that we think not only about our physical health, but also our sexual and reproductive health. That's why I have my friend, Dr. Kimberly Turner, with us today to help us navigate this conversation, dispel myths, and enter this next phase of our reproductive health with confidence, clarity, and purpose. This is part one of our two-part series because there is so much information that we want to discuss, and it's too much to do in one episode. So I'm so glad that she's agreed to be here for two series episodes with me. Dr. Kimberly Turner is a women's health specialist and obstetrician and gynecologist with Johns Hopkins Community Physicians in Columbia, Maryland. She's been a health advocate for women for over 26 years and has a passion about the health of Black women and mentoring the next generation of women's health specialists. Welcome, Dr. Turner. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Oh, I am super glad that you are here because we have a lot that we need to cover. I know that for myself, we have just talked about how there are crazy myths that are out there online. Uh, A lot of people, I'm sure your patients will tell you what they looked up on WebMD and all of these things when they come into your office, right? They do. Um, We really discourage the Googling before the visit, if possible. I know, I know. So if you could, just for our listeners, tell us a little bit about the work that you do, a little bit about yourself, and why you're interested in women's health so much. Sure. Well, I was that um, Columbia kid, so shout out to anybody from Columbia, who was sort of mentored by my seventh grade teacher about being a physician. And then as the journey goes, you go to college, you go to medical school. And the thing that I liked the most was the surgery. However, I did not like the surgeons. Mm. Um, They didn't look like me. I went to Duke Medical School. Um, I did not have any great leaders in the surgical cohort. But what I found was there are women, lots of women in um, obstetrics and gynecology. And that specialty combines surgery with medicine. And it was just fascinating. From the moment I learned the anatomy of the pelvis, I was just super interested in the anatomy and the physiology. Um, And then sadly, I had also had an experience when I was 21 years old at an emergency room. At that time, I was living in Rochester, sort of a summer away from my parents working at Xerox, and I had a gynecologic emergency. Um, And I was really unhappy with the treatment that I received at that time. 
Um, and I vowed if I ever got the opportunity that I would always treat patients um, differently than I was treated as a 21 year old black woman on their own. Right. So now fast forward 26 years. Um, that's what I've been devoting my life's work to doing. I, I think that's so important what you said. I mean, just how much you're really just hoping that the physician that's sitting in front of you has your best interest at heart, is not making stereotypical assumptions about you, all of the different things that we have to go to as Black, go through as Black women as we're at doctor's mercies a lot of times. So I'm so glad that you've been able to really navigate that and be able to even look like you're creating more space for women, especially women physicians, to be the next health specialist. Is that true as well? That's true. I really am trying um, sort of at the basement and ground level of my mentoring, but um, in Howard County General, we do plan on starting a mentoring for physicians program. And it the idea kind of came out of the fact that the turnover rate in some of the group practices is really high. Right. And, you know, we need all bodies on deck most of the time, especially in obstetrics. Yes. Um, And we want physicians to be happy. So how is it that some of us have made it past 20 years and some of us are really struggling in the beginning years? Um, Right. So how do you make those friendships, learn the skills, not only the soft skills, but the hard skills, the surgical skills, the obstetrical skills. Um, And so I really feel like I am sage enough to lead that effort. Yeah. Um, In addition, I'm looking to further my own career into something maybe a little different and I need mentors. Right. So at, you know, I work at Johns Hopkins where, where else are there so many different types of mentors, but how do you connect to them? Right. And I think that it's so important that even after your beautiful, lovely 26 year career, that you're still interested in growing and changing and morphing what that career is into your passion. And that's the work that I do with most of my clients as well, especially women in their 30s, 40s, 50s that are still like, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, even though I've been in this career for 20 years. Um, So I think that that's wonderful. And it lets us know that sometimes our pain points, like what you experienced when you were 21, was a point that helped fuel your passion. And I think a lot of times we have to do a little bit of living in order to figure out what we really want to do in this world and how we want to make our mark. So it is funny as you said that. So it just reminds me of a story about my husband when I met him. He said, uh, So what are your goals? And I'm looking at him like, I'm sitting here, you see me studying for my OBGYN board exam. Like that was my goal. Right. <laughs> and I did it. So now I want to grow and mature in that role. Little did I know that, you know, the average person changes jobs, what, three, four times in yes. their lifetime, um, that there might come a time when I was interested in something else. So having done this work on a one-on-one basis, I too probably need some coaching from you right. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how to make a more global impact, particularly now that you know, African-American women are experiencing more morbidity and mortality in pregnancy. They're dying from all of these treatable diseases. Right. The fibroid war continues to rage. I mean, just on and on. And everything affects us 
somewhat differently. I agree with you. And I think the other piece of that, and I'm sure in your practice, the work that you've done in Columbia, Maryland, which is kind of in between Baltimore and in between DC, for those of you that don't know logistically where it is, but what you'll find is a very highly educated, very highly accomplished group of women that you have, I'm sure, as patients. But even with that, you have that strong woman syndrome, that I don't need any help syndrome. And so sometimes I'm sure by the time they get to you, they've really just missed the ball on trying to figure mm-hmm. out how to take care of their own reproductive health. Would you say that that's what you've experienced as well? I would. One of the fascinating things, because I started in Baltimore City trying to cure teen pregnancy. Well, yeah. that work continues. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and I took over a small private practice in Columbia, and eventually it merged with Howard County General. Um, so as... I got more into the upper middle class, people that were just as educated, sometimes more than me, it definitely brought on different challenges. Yes. Um, And one of the main ones is, you know, waiting until you're an older woman having a baby and what that brings, particularly again in an African-American woman. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that as a factor that a lot of women are putting off having children until later years. They're trying to accomplish their own educational goals. They want to really get started in their careers. Then they turn around and go, "Uh oh, I don't have a partner yet. And then they're navigating that whole world. So yes, I know a lot of women in their early 40s that are having their first child. And it definitely brings a lot of mental physical and emotional challenges for that demographic. So definitely. I kind of jokingly say that 42 is my age of comfort. I lose comfort a little bit Mm -hmm. at 43. Obviously we take on whatever comes. Um, But as you know, and as hopefully most listeners know, the reproductive life is not infinite, particularly for women. Right. So there's lots of things, though. I mean, if you just talk to a specialist, we're freezing eggs now. We are, you know, trying to optimize health if you are over 42, my comfort level. Right. Um, so that when you are pregnant, you're not at risk for heart disease or stroke or diabetes. Yeah, those are really key. And I think that, like you said, as we're coming the, becoming those women of a certain age, we just have other factors that we have to look at in addition to still trying to have children, but just what our bodies are naturally going through. But for me, it also really starts with why is it important to talk about reproductive health in the beginning? And how do we get the most out of these GYN exams, even starting as early as your teens and your 20s. I I talked about on the last episode, all the fun I had with my mother, um, who was a health and physical education teacher, and how she should have been one of the best people to be able to give me information on my body, on periods, on GYN exams, and even the whole sexual piece when I had my first little boyfriend. But she literally Mm -hmm. walked in the room told me if I got pregnant, she was still going to bingo and bowling and being a volleyball (laughs) coach and all the things she was doing. And then she threw some spermicide on my bed. So that was was 
to talk at, at my house. And so how do we prepare even for these first visits for younger people in their teens and 20s to work with you? So I think in the teens, it really is just the mother's willingness to let me talk to the child alone. And I went through this with my own daughter when I took her. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I had to leave the room. So when you're the patient and when you're the provider, your perspective is a little different. Yes. (laughs) Um, But willingness to let us even talk to these girls, because what I talk to the teenagers about is primarily sexuality. Right. And again, sexuality is really evolving and changing and these younger generations have a little bit different perspective on sexuality, but we talk about safety. We talk about preventing disease and we don't have to examine them. I mean, many of these women are virginal and that that exam in and of itself would be traumatic. So it's mostly a discussion. And then if they're in a heterosexual relationship, we talk about contraception and condom use Um, and limiting your partners. It's just a huge part that they don't always understand because monogamy doesn't mean that you have intercourse with one person for six months and another one for the next six months. Right. And another one and another (laughs) one, once you're getting into that, that college age, you know, I have a daughter that's a freshman in college and just trying to get those basic understandings um, that it's a mind body connection piece because it's like, you have to be solid mentally to withstand what goes on with some of these relationships with young people as well, that you don't owe anybody anything. I I read this book called uh, The Body is Not an Apology and how Mm -hmm. to train young women to understand that just because somebody likes you, you don't have to sleep with them. You know, male, female, it doesn't matter. Sure. Um, So I'm Sure. sure those early visits just, you know, and all you mothers out there who have young daughters please do what Dr. Turner said. And that's really let the providers talk to your children, especially if you are feeling uncomfortable or uninformed, even if you think you might be informed, let the professionals do that. Um, And so I think that's really important. And then the next phase of that, when you are beyond the conversation, what could you tell us about pap screenings and, and pregnancy planning for those that are ready to go to that next phase? Okay, well, pap screening has become a whole area of, um, I don't want to say uncertainty because it's not uncertain, but it's changed quite a bit in the last 20 years um, with the advent of HPV screening. Mm. So HPV is the human papilloma virus, and we start screening for that at age 30. Um, However, we start screening for PAPS, which is the test for cervical cancer, at age 21. And now we do the PAPS screening. It can be anywhere from every three to five years. Mm. However, we do still want to see and interact with women once a year so that we can do their physical exam. And that's the breast. That's the pelvic exam. We can talk about menstruation, contraception, Um, normal and abnormal periods. I mean, I've had patients come and say, you know, every time I get my period, I curl up in a ball and cry for seven days. Right. That is not normal. Right. (laughs) Um, But they've lived that way sometimes for five and 10 years. Yes. And we can help them with that. Yes. Um, Another thing that I want to break up, bring up, excuse me, is the HPV vaccination. Oh, yes. Um, And really the pediatricians are really, doing a great job handling this because almost all the women I see, young women, older women, 
have been vaccinated um, by their pediatrician. And we try to get to those young women, you know, during their sexually naive, I call it, sexual naivete, yeah. um, before they have any naked contact. Yes, yes of any sort. And I, I sure. think that that's big and prepping parents like me again, highly educated, highly informed, work in public health myself. And when my oldest child went in it, I think it was, I can't remember if it was 11 or 13. And it was like, Hey, we want to give her a shot today of HPV vaccine. And I'm going, what, what is that? You know, <laughs> why? And so it was so much at one time that, you know, to really get parents to understand the importance of these things is, is key too. Right. One of the happiest moments of my career was when I took my son to get an HPV vaccine yeah. because it's not just for women anymore. Um, I would love to a- advocate and advertise that it's safe and effective. And if all of the children would get it, then there would be no more HPV. And there would probably be very little, if any, cervical cancer. And, and that's really good to say, too, because we know that most of the time, the whole reproductive health, sexual health, it, the onus is put on the young lady all, all the time. Sure. And sure. just by you saying that and really calling all of the parents that may be listening that have sons to help them navigate the importance of taking care of their bodies too and keeping themselves healthy and protecting the young ladies all at the same time. All right. So I have a son and a daughter, as I think I intimated. Um, and again, just kind of a funny. So I, I used to be the house where the boys would gather and especially in high school. And I would pull out pictures and talk to them with their mother's permission. <laughs> Uh, but at one point, I realized that when they started dating and a lot of these girls started coming to me for their contraception, that I was going to know the things that they needed to know and didn't. Right. And I couldn't tell them. Right. <laughs> so it was just sort of a joke. Like, please don't give any girl a sexually transmitted disease because I'm going to know and then I can't tell you. <laughs> yes. And that, you know, that's a very fine line, you know, professional and mom all at the same time. Sure. And then you just made me think of a funny with the pictures thing. I think I, I didn't tell the whole truth about my mom's talk with me. The other piece also involved showing me pictures from her health books of people <laughs> with genital warts and other mm-hmm. things like that to, I guess, deter me from having mm-hmm. intercourse mm-hmm. early on, you know, in high school. So, you know, and it worked, but it was still like, really, is this the best way we do this? But, you know, sure. it was the 80s. What do you do? What do, you do? <laughs> A lot of times with the really young girls, if they don't need the pelvic exam, I will just show them the equipment yeah. that we use. They won't be so shocked. And we talk about what has to happen, but not until they turn 21 particularly if there's no sexual intercourse, there's no need for a pelvic exam. Yeah. And I think that that's really good to understand when, why, and what all of those pieces for just a safe exam and a clear understanding, because like you said, you don't know who's walking in your door and what type of trauma they may have been in. And that exam within itself is traumatizing. It's sure. it can be very difficult, very violating. So knowing what a patient's history is, even though you may not be the physician or the therapist that may be working on some of those other triggers, it is it is nice to have that explanation in the beginning for, for patients. Yeah. yeah. Sexual trauma is just a whole episode, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, 
but we do have women who have had that trauma. I mean, in some ways, I think that's what happened even to me. Right. Um, and it's, there's cultural differences. There's people that don't have penetrative intercourse. So the pelvic exam can also add to that trauma. So it is important to find a provider that you can feel comfortable with, and that can hopefully guide you through that experience. And then I think even along those lines, just that monthly self-care or the, the, the ability to know how to clean the hygiene, just old school, you know, using douche and all of those things that your grandmother told you to do. And that, that <laughs> little water bottle thing with the cord hanging, you know, it's like all of those things have changed. Wouldn't you say? Oh, they definitely have. So vaginal health is really quite simple. Uh, One time I had a student that told me the vagina is a self-cleaning oven. Mm. And I have remembered that for all of these years because in normal circumstances, the pH balance, you remember your chemistry, pH can be an acid or a base. Mm -hmm. And the vagina is acidic. So it kind of fights most things on its own. And the acidic environment invites bacteria that also fight things on its own. But unfortunately, the things that are basic that are introduced into the vagina are blood right, and semen right, and douching. Most of those are vinegar. So if you remember right. your chemistry again, vinegar is a base. Right. Um, so really mostly what you need is soap and water and right. basic hygiene, um, you know, avoidance of irritants like perfumes and powder. We don't ever advocate putting powder in or near the genitals. Um, in 2021. Right. So it's really mostly about basic hygiene. Um, You can sometimes also invite the good bacteria by using um, probiotics. Mm, Yes. Some women eat more yeast because there's a bacteria called lactobacillus that also helps to um, promote vaginal health and the good bacteria. And if necessary, you can also get an over-the-counter uh, medication, which is called Refresh, and it's R-E-P-H, R-E-S-H. So some women use that um, after their period or after intercourse to restore the pH to the healthy acidic pH. Wow. I but again, know. I will emphasize that I think it's really mostly basic hygiene. Unfortunately, you know, there's hair there, there's sweat glands there. So it's an area that is going to sometimes feel irritated or have a different odor. Right. Right. And we have to remember that that doesn't mean that something's wrong, but to really keep a lookout. Sure. Not always, but there are also infections. So if those symptoms persist, despite what I've just talked about, then you would need to see a provider. That's good. That's good. And another thing I know that happens, especially with, with black women and either go undetected for a while or, the patient just doesn't know what to do is when it comes to fibroids. Is there Mm -hmm. anything that you could share? I know we're talking in the other episode about certain age groups and where that may come in, but just overall, just what have you experienced with your patients as it relates to fibroids? Well, one of the big things is uh, know your family history. Mm. So again, I'll just interject another personal funny story. So my mother had a hysterectomy before I was a physician And when I became a physician, I actually inherited her chart because she was a patient of the practice that I had been in, that I bought. 
Um, and so I handed her a chart saying, mommy, I don't, I don't want to read your chart. <laughs> you can right, have it. Right, right. <laughs> um, but I am curious why you had a hysterectomy. And she didn't know. Oh. She literally said, because the provider told me to. And that whole paternalistic, just you need it. And you, with no explanation, is definitely over. And I would advocate that if someone tells you that you need something, they need to explain why. Yeah. Particularly if it's surgery. <laughs> yes. Um, but the family history. So my mother had fibroids, it turns out. And I had fibroids, it turns out. So I'm starting to talk to my 17-year-old daughter about what that might look like for her if right. she got that gene. Right. Um, that being said, 80% of African-American women have fibroids. Right. Wow. And it is the most common cause of hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. So if, and the most common symptoms are heavy bleeding, irregular bleeding, pelvic pain, painful intercourse. So if you have those symptoms, I'd really recommend that you talk about those, not necessarily in the annual visit, because that's not for problems, (laughs) but in a separate visit um, so that we can investigate that and figure it out and you can make a plan. And that's really good to know as well, because again, misinformation or not having the full picture. I remember my mother had fibroids as well. And it, you know, may, they were the size of, if I remember, one was the size of a grapefruit and the other five were the size of golf balls. Mm-hmm. And she had talked to my grandmother about it. And my grandmother told her, oh, I had them too. Um, and I didn't do anything about it. And she's like, are they bothering you? My mother's like, well, not really, other than not liking that my stomach protrudes like a pregnant person. And Mm -hmm. so my grandmother told her, if they're not bothering you, don't bother them. And I remember being a kid where my mother had made this appointment to get the hysterectomy. And the day before she told my father she wasn't going. Um, (laughs) And anybody that knew my mother knew that once she made up her mind, she was not going. Um, And my father was just supportive. He was like, if you feel afraid of this, don't do it. And she never did. Mm -hmm. But she also felt as she aged that they started to shrink. So it was really interesting, Mm -hmm. whether it was mind over matter, whatever it was, she just felt that she would have had an unnecessary hysterectomy. Very interesting. One of my uh, age old sayings is if you don't have fibroid symptoms, you don't have to have them treated. But when you do have symptoms, if we've exhausted all the other possibilities of treatment, then surgery might be indicated. Yeah. Um, And you're right. So the reason why fibroids are really a bigger problem in your reproductive years, so that's somewhere when you start ovulating regularly, 13, 14. Right. It takes time for them to grow. So they're most bothersome between the 20s and 40s if you're going to have them. Um, And that's because you have a lot of estrogen secretion, that hormone from your ovaries, and estrogen makes them grow. Mm. Once you hit 50-51, those estrogen levels decline, so most of those tumors will shrink. Wow. So my mom and grandmother weren't wrong, necessarily. They were correct. They were correct. And she waited it out, and they literally started to disappear. That protrusion of her stomach went away, and... You know, it was it was very, very interesting to hear that because usually she made up things. So I was glad to know that this was actually, yeah, she did. That's the whole show by itself. <laughs> Which is why I wrote the book about my mother because she was a whole, 
she was a whole character by herself. So, but yeah, I, as we get ready to close out for, for this particular episode, cause you're so easy to talk to and I could see it's going on for the next two hours <laughs> about so many different things. Are, are there any other things that you'd like to share about vaginal health, about sex throughout the lifespan or anything else that you think that our listeners should know before we close today? Um, I would just like to encourage women to find that provider that they click with. It's, um, you know, getting to be more and more common that we're trying to match people based on ethnicity, which is really challenging um, when you're the provider and there's not a lot of us out there, but it doesn't have to be. And I do think that most physicians are making a concerted effort to really listen, especially to African-American women. Right. I mean, I have a Muslim um, physician colleague who evidently saw an African-American patient and she said she had to spend an extra 20 minutes telling her, I promise you we're listening. Um, And there's a lot of training going on about implicit bias. And that's again, a whole nother show. Oh yeah. Um, But I do think we're making a concerted effort. Um, And if you don't click with one provider, try another. That's, that's the way that it should go. I really, I really like that. I, I know we'll talk a little more about some of these things next week, but if you could just quickly tell people what you want to do with this menopause coaching business. I'm, I'm very interested in that as we're moving towards that end of the lifespan, the women's spectrum. Sure. Well, Johns Hopkins actually has a center for post-reproductive health, and I just found out about it. Wow. And at the same time, I've been aging. My patients have been aging. So I'd say about 80% of my visits have to do with menopausal health. Um, And again, it's not, unfortunately, we just have such a limited amount of time. We have 10 to 15 minutes usually to go through everything. And it's not a 10 to 15 minute visit. Right. So I would love to have a side business where I can really talk to um, patients and even couples about sexuality and what happens when you age. Right. Um, I'm planning to start that. I don't know exactly when because, you know, the demands of life (laughs) keep coming at me. Um, but, this, but I'm really interested in working with Hopkins at one rate, right? It, and also maybe starting something my own, of my own. Yeah, I totally understand that, and um, I think that that will be great when you do get it off the ground. So I hope that you definitely will have the clients. So it will mm-hmm. be great for you to do that. Is there Thank anything you. else you'd like to share before we go today? I think we did a great job. We covered a lot. We did. Thank you so much. And I think that all the information you shared was wonderful and can't wait to have you on the show next week so that we could talk more about this post-reproductive health and sexuality as we age. So that's all I have for you today. And I want to thank Dr. Turner for being on the show. And we look forward to continuing the conversation next week. Thank you. Thank you. And everyone have a great day. And remember, in order to walk through life with confidence, clarity, and purpose, you've got to get your head in the game. Have a great day, everyone. 